0: All right, Genesis chapter 8, you guys there? In your Bibles, everybody's got their pens, click, 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 got them? All right, so Kelly's going to come read, and she's going to read Genesis 8, beginning in verse 13, and she's going to read all the way through nine seventeen, or is it 18, 17, so in eight thirteen, everybody there, yeah. got, got it, got it, all right, and then we will see what God has for us this morning.
1: All right, starting in chapter 8 of Genesis, verse 13. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, Everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens "'upon everything that creeps on the ground "'and all the fish of the sea. "'Into your hand they are delivered. "'Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. "'And as I gave you the green plants, "'I give you everything. "'But you shall not eat flesh with its life, "'that is, its blood. "'And for your lifeblood, "'I will require a reckoning from every beast. "'I will require it and from man. "'From his fellow man, "'I will require a reckoning for the life of man.'" Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So quick little review. Last week, we saw that the most important moment in the Noah story and the most important moment in Noah's life was chapter 8, verse 1, which says, but God remembered Noah. That is the pinnacle of the story. And we realize, we learned that when it says that God remembered Noah, it means that God took action. God removed the flood waters of judgment. God set Noah free from the ark to roam the earth, and God gave Noah rest. In chapter 8, God is reversing everything he did in chapter 7. Now, this morning, I want to share with you one more thing you're taking notes from last week, this is kind of a continuation. One more thing that God does when he remembers Noah. One more thing God does, and here it is. God, when he remembers Noah, he recreates the earth. The Noah story, although it's been about lots of different things, certainly about God remembering Noah, but it's about God recreating. It is about second chances. So of all the other things we looked at last week, the comparisons of chapter 7 and 8. Remember, chapter 7, all the destruction gets reversed in chapter 8. Well, there's something else going on, and that is God is redoing Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, this is, this is a do-over in Genesis 8 and 9. Let me show you what I mean by looking at a little slide that we put together. So in Genesis 1, on day 1, we see the Spirit hovering over the earth. Well, in Genesis 8, verse 1, it says the wind was blowing over the earth. The word wind there is the exact same word as Genesis 1, 1 for the Spirit. So the Spirit is working in Genesis 1. The Spirit is working in Genesis 8 to blow back the water. Day 2, God separates the land and the water. In Genesis 8 and 9, we see the waters are receding and the land dries up. Day 3, there are plants being uh, growing And then when we get to Genesis 8.11, we see that the the dove has a fresh olive leaf in its mouth. Creation, plants are starting to grow. Day five, God does seasons. In 8.22, where Kelly just read, it says that there's cold, heat, summer, winter. There are seasons again. In day five, he talks about every living thing that God creates. In 8.17, God tells Noah to bring out every living thing from the ark. And then in day six, God makes man in his own image. And then what we just saw in 9.6, Man is in God's image. You see what God's doing? It's a restart. It's a recreation of the earth. If Genesis 1, remember we talked about this, God is building a stage called the earth, and he's casting characters for his great redemption story. Then chapters 8 and 9 is God taking out his clapboard and going, Genesis, creation, take two. And he's starting over again with a second creation. Simply put, what God is doing here is recreating the earth. He's giving second birth. This is a new creation. And this is meant to tell us something about God, which is what we should always be looking for when we're reading God's word, right? It tells us stuff about God. This tells us something about God, and this foreshadows something. I mean, come on, don't these terms sound familiar to you? Recreating, born again, new creation. of that sound familiar to any of us. I mean this is clearly a picture of God recreating the earth as a picture of what God does in our salvation. You guys know 2 Corinthians 5:17, you can finish the verse for me. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. a new creation. The old has passed away; behold, the new is come. I mean this is it. This morning you can and should celebrate that just as God made a new creation in Genesis 8 and we'll see in 9, he has made you a new creation in Christ. Because of Jesus, the old is gone, even though your old man sticks his ugly head out every day at different times. He is still passed away. The old you is dead, even as Casey's prophetic word this morning, the victory. When, when Christ died, you die. The old you is dead. You are brand new. You just kind of need to embrace this for a moment. You are a new creation in Christ. That's really good news. You're a new creation in Christ. The old you is gone. You have a brand new you. And in case that's not good enough, which I think it is, Revelation 21.5 tells us that one day, and he who was seated on the throne said, "Behold, I am making all things new. He's making all things new. So the new you is going to be even newer. I don't know how it happens. You're going to be perfected even more than you are now. All sin will be removed from you." So we're headed in one direction, guys. All brand new. You're a new creation and you're just getting newer every day until the day when you are new, 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 when you see Christ face to face. This is something you've got to know about God and you've got to believe about God. God loves to show off the glory of His recreating power. He enjoys taking old things and making them new, He loves taking broken things and making them new. God loves do-overs. Any of you ever want a do-over? I want do-overs. God is the God of do-overs, only he's not looking at us to make the do-overs do-overs. He does the do-overs for us. Because you're new, he gets joy out of taking dead things and bringing them to life. He loves to take the work of his son and apply it to your life, making you perfect in God's eyes. This is what happened to creation when God remembers Noah. He brings Noah safely through the floodwaters of judgment, and he does a complete creation restart. And this is exactly what he does for you. He brings you through the waters of judgment, and then he makes you brand new. So there's sermon number one for this morning. I've got four more for you. That makes five total. There's five days this week. So tomorrow morning, you need to take some time meditating on and celebrating that you are a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away and the new has come. And now sermon number two, which is connected to sermon number one this way, because there's another thing in this passage that Kelly just read that just screams out Genesis chapter one. There's a phrase that's repeated three times in here that we saw in Genesis chapter one. Did any of you catch it? B. Fruitful and multiply. We see that three times in this passage. He says to us, be fruitful and multiply. Did you catch some? Look at verse 17. Don't take my word for it. Verse 17, the very last line, be fruitful and multiply. Look at 9-1. Circle it. Be fruitful and multiply. Look at 9-7. Be fruitful and multiply. It seems that, Be fruitful and multiply is the thread that runs through this whole passage that ties it together. That when God remembers Noah, he gives everything a new creation, and then he takes that new creation and says, now go be fruitful and multiply. Now too often, we hear the phrase, be fruitful and multiply, and we assume that means God wants us to make lots of babies. I think there's a whole lot more going on than that. It includes that, but I think there's so much more going on than just make babies when God says, be fruitful and multiply. If I said to you, I want you to bear fruit this week, you wouldn't go, i got to have a baby. <laughs> if I said, hey, this week I want you to multiply, we have New Testament words, right? That, that, oh, I think I know what that means. It's about making disciples, right? Yeah, it doesn't mean go reproduce physically, <laughs> but spiritually it does. So I think there's more happening here when God says to them, you're a new creation, be fruitful and multiply. God is getting at something more. And that thread through this passage, God's going to tell us what he means to be fruitful and multiply. It's pretty simple. He's going to tell us. He's going to give us categories. You're going to be fruitful and multiply. Here's what you're going to do. So I need to get us there. And we gotta, we got to kind of figure out how to, how to unearth, especially this first one, because something happens in 8.15. I want you to look there. Where God speaks to Noah for the first time in over a year. And he gives Noah these three commands. Okay, so, so imagine he's saying, look what he says in, in verse 18, be fruitful and multiply. So he tells him to be fruitful and multiply, but he gives him two commands before that. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, he says, bring out with you every living thing. So bring out is the first command. I'm sorry, back up to verse 16. Go out from the ark is the first command. He says, go out from the ark, you and your wives and your sons. So that's the first command. Second command, bring out with you all the living animals. Third command, be fruitful and multiply. You catch this? So what does Noah do in verse 18? So Noah went out. So he obeyed the first command in verse 16 to go out from the ark. You tracking with me? He does it. And then at the end of verse 19, it says, well, it says in eight, 19, every beast, every living creep, creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families. So three commands God gives him. He's already done the first two by the end of verse 20, by the end of verse 19. So there's only one command left, which is, be fruitful and multiply. So what does Noah do? He gets out of the boat. He's just told to be fruitful and multiply. And here's what he does. And this is going to be a little bit hard to wrap our brain around. This is what he does in verse 20. Let's read it together. Let me see if I can walk us through this. You guys tracking with me? Am I going too fast? All right, here we go. So verse 20. So here's what Noah does. Noah gets off the boat. Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Let's just stop for a moment. From what we know from just this passage, God did not tell Noah to offer this sacrifice. Didn't, we don't know, but it doesn't seem like God told him to do this. And we don't know why Noah does it. Is Noah saying, thank you, God, for getting me through the flood? Is Noah saying, God, I hope this propitiates your anger and that you don't annihilate me tomorrow because I send enough on the boat to make it worth me dying right now. But you don't know, right? We don't have any idea. So all we do know, and I think this is key, is that Noah is sacrificing, he is sacrificing his very limited resources. He gets off the boat, doesn't have a whole lot, and he's slaughtering birds and animals. I mean... Come on, that sounds delicious to eat or for some other purpose than just a slaughter. And a burnt offering would have meant he got nothing out of it. In other words, it went on the altar and it was burned up until it was completely gone, bones and all gone. So he's not benefiting. So he's taking his limited resources and he's sacrificing them to God when he gets off of the boat. So we don't know anything else that's going on in this story. But we do know how God responds, which is, I think, the point. So let's see how God responds. Verse 21 And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said, what's it say? In his heart. So he's not speaking to Noah. Noah has no idea what's going on now. This is behind the scenes. The reader, we, get a glimpse into what's happening. Noah has no idea. So what does he say? He smells the pleasing aroma, and the Lord says in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So God now makes this promise to who? To himself. And he's making it to the ground, right? And to living creatures. Now, I don't know if they could hear it either, but in God's heart, that's what he's doing. And what he's saying here is, prior to this moment, I actually cursed the earth because of whose sin? The people's sin, man's sin. So it's because of man's sin that God said, I cursed the ground and I struck down every living thing. And God says, even though man is still sinful, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to do that again. And then he, he adds a blessing to this, right? While the earth remains, sea time, harvest, cold, heat, winter, summer, day and night, shall not cease. I don't know if any of you last night lied in bed and wondered, is the sun going to rise in the morning? Is August ever going to end? (laughs) Will it be 100 degrees with a million percent humidity forever? This is the reason we don't worry. Because God promised. There's going to be winter, there's going to be summer, there's going to be springtime, there's going to be harvest. So he he proved promises that here so what is the point of this this is the conclusion i drew i draw to be fruitful and multiply we are to live humbly before god offering our limited resources not knowing what god's going to do with them that kind of seems what noah's doing he gets off the ark he's been told to be fruitful and multiply and the first thing he does is look i got limited resources here but i want to i want to give them to god and I have no idea what God's going to do with them. Noah doesn't know what God's doing with them. God, Noah has no idea, but he takes his limited resources, he casts them at God's feet, and he says, they're yours to use. So it seems like there's something for us about, do you want to be fruitful and multiply? Are you willing to take your limited resources, whatever they are, and say, God, they're yours, use them. And if I don't know what the results is, it's okay. If I don't see the result from it, if I don't hear from you about what you're doing with it, it's okay, it's yours. Take it. So it seems like that's the first thing. So maybe that's sermon two, point number one, (laughs) or point number two. I would encourage you to think and believe and live humbly with your God as a new creation if you want to be fruitful and multiply. So now we move on to a second category, big category, which perhaps is point really number two or three, I don't know. One of those. Think, believe, and live rightly with all of creation. This is what happens next in verse, chapter 9, verse 1. He transitions. God is saying, if you're a new creation, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now he's going to tell us one way, another way, that we are fruitful and we multiply and we fill the earth. Here's how, verse 2 The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every living beast of the earth, and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its blood, with its life, that is, its blood. So I read that and I say, fire up the barbie. Get a steak going. But I think there's more going on, obviously, than that. Here, God seems to be saying that in order to be fruitful and multiply, we need to understand the resources of the animals and to not abuse the reality that they are delivered into our hands. Right? They are delivered into our hands. The fear of us and the dread of us is on them, but we are not to abuse that privilege. They have worth. They have value. So don't disrespect them, what he's saying, and eat them while the blood is still pulsing through their veins. There's, don't be an animal as you're eating animals. Don't do it like they do it. Respect them. So I think there's more going on here than just don't eat a steak with some blood in it. I think there's way more going on than that. There's something here about blood and I think the reality that blood brings life and so respect the animals respect them when they have blood in their veins. Now this whole story here is just rich with talk about creation. Theologian Elizabeth Makea said this past week <laughs> that in chapters 8 and 9 God seems to really care and value the earth and his animals and creation. He seems to really love them and cherish them and I thought she's right. How many times in the, just this one section where you get to the, the bow in the sky in the covenant does he have to say something about the birds and the living creatures? I mean, look at verse 10. It's with, he's making this covenant with every living creature, the birds, the livestock, every beast, every beast. You get down to verse 12, and it's every living creature. Verse 15, every living creature of all flesh. Verse 16, every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Verse 17, all flesh that is on the earth. I mean, just over and over and over again, God is... Enjoying and exalting in his creation. And it makes sense that God would value his creation this way. After all, his creation is not sinning in his rebellion against man, against God, like man is. Is it? Creation, then and today, is acting the way God created it to act. So it has worth. Elizabeth Elliot said this, A clam clam, glorifies God better than we do because the clam is being everything it was created to be. Not so true with humans, is it? So we should look at a bird, a bee, a tree, a dog. Yes, even a cat. (laughs) With deep respect look your dog in the eye when you get home or your bird or whatever you have find a squirrel in the backyard something and declare over it you glorify god better than me for you will behave today more like you were created to behave than i will behave the way god created me to behave in other words god values his creation See, I think our world today is concerned about the environment because we need to have enough drinking water. And we don't like global warming because it's not good for us. But what God reveals here is that we should respect and care for creation because it is acting the way God created it to act. And because it's revealing to us things about God that we wouldn't know otherwise. Right? That's what Romans 1 is all about. The creation is taking God's invisible attributes and making them visible so we can see them. So we value creation. We value the animals with blood pumping through their veins because in ways they're teaching us and showing us things about God that we wouldn't know otherwise. And so the dread of them, he says, is, is in them. They fear us. Maybe this is why dogs bark and growl at us. Stop sinning. rough, <laughs> rough. Act more like God told you to. (laughs) This is why deer run from us when we try to harvest them. (laughs) Because there's fear in them about us. But we are to not abuse that privilege and treat them with disrespect. We are to love them and care for them and treat them the way that God would want us to treat them with honor. Because they speak to us. The animals speak to us about God's power, his creativity, his order, and his beauty. Another way to say this might be respect creation, the animals, and all of creation because it enables you to be fruitful and to multiply and to see God's character in ways you wouldn't otherwise. So there's something there for us in how we interact with creation. Next one. You want to be fruitful and multiply? I would encourage us to think. I think God would encourage us to think and believe and live rightly with your fellow man. That's so what he does next. He is just said to be fruitful and multiply. He talks about the animals. And then at verse 5, he transitions, he starts talking about man. And for your lifeblood, God says, verse 5, chapter 9, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So what's going on here? I have heard perhaps too many people, pastors, use these verses to passionately argue for the government establishing capital punishment. They will say that God is giving the government here a command to punish murderers with the death penalty. Now, I have a problem with this. The problem is that there is nothing in Genesis 9 about government. (laughs) Nothing. In fact, there's nothing in chapter 8 or prior to chapter 9, and there's nothing after chapter 9 that mentions anything about the government, not even the slightest hint So I think if we go there, we're missing the point of what God is trying to tell us in this passage. And it seems very clear that God wants us to know that he is the one who will require the reckoning, not the government. Do you see that? Three times God says, I will require a reckoning. I will require it. I will require a reckoning. In other words, God is the one who is going to hold not just man, but animals. This is a weird one. Somehow, the wild boar that gore somebody to death is going to be held accountable. He will have to be called to account for what he did because he was shedding blood. So what is the point of this little section here? And I think it's this. It seems the point is that God knows that the heart of man is still evil from his youth and that he will continue to murder each other unless, listen to this, unless they keep this one thing in mind. And here's the one thing, and it's not that if you do it you're going to die. It's that God made man in his own image. In other words, God is saying, I want to restrain man from killing man by reminding you once again that man was created in God's own image. Now, the animals teach us things about God, but they're not in the image of God. Even though an animal may act more like it was created to act than we do, none of them are in the image of God. But... Every man, every woman, every child is created in the image of God. We talked about this when we were in Genesis chapter 1. Therefore, every human being who has ever lived or is alive today on the earth right now has value, dignity, and highest worth because no matter how flawed they might be, the image of God is stamped on their hearts. Do you believe that everyone everyone this means we are to look at other humans and think i am to treat you as i would treat god Isn't mean, that kind of what jesus said right you do it to the least of these you're doing it for me you should look at every other human being that god brings across your path and say you are made in the image of god therefore i want to speak to you and interact with you as if i was speaking and interacting with god himself obviously with some nuances. We're not going to worship the person. But the point is they have value. See, we, we value things differently than God. All human beings are valued by God because they are made in the image of Christ, in the image of God. But we go into other categories. I know that economic status should definitely not impact how we treat or think about someone because they're made in the image of God. All people of every color of skin, race, gender, gay, lesbian transvestite every religion muslim hindu jewish atheist all of them are created in the image of god no matter the political party they identify with no matter their perspective of vaccines or masks no matter how far left no matter how far right all created in the image of god as disciples of jesus listen we are to lump all people together all of them together into one big beautiful unchanging amazing breathtaking mind-blowing category created in the image of God. It makes me want to walk around Walmart and just go, hey, you're created in the image of God. And so are you. And so are you. In the image of God. You see that, and that changes everything with how you interact with people. You see them, and you stop noticing all the other stuff that's happening or what they look like or whatever the deal is, and you go, in the image of God. That will completely change how you talk to them. That will completely change how you treat them. And that's what God is getting at here. You want to be fruitful and multiply on the earth? You're a new creation. So treat them as people made in the image of God and it will go well. You will find fruit and multiplication. Notice I'm not defining fruit and multiplication. (laughs) I'm not defining it. I'm just saying this is what God tells you to do. And if you do it, there's going to be fruit. And whatever this multiplication thing is, it's going to happen when you look at people and remember they were created in the image of God. All right, so now we come to the last time God is going to say, verse 7, be fruitful and multiply. Here it is again, 9-7. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And now we get to this covenant that God makes. So I think number f- the fourth thing that someone who is a new creation, who is going to be fruitful and multiply, needs to do is think, believe, and live rightly with God. Sort of similar to one of the first ones I said. This one has a different nuance to it. Because this one is all about covenant. This is all about covenant. This is about God making a promise he will never break. And so, I don't know if you noticed, but in verses, we're going down to verses 8 through 17. This is the whole section on the bow and the covenant. God uses the word, he says the word covenant seven times. Now, if you understand your Bible, are, I think there's five, I think of five major covenants in the Bible. You got this one with Noah, you got an Abraham one, a Moses one, a David one, and a Jesus one. You have five covenants, major ones. So this is the first one of them. And seven times here God says covenant, 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 covenant. So there's no question whether this is about covenants. The second thing I want us to notice is this. You need to notice who is establishing this covenant. And this screams out when we slow down and read it slowly. Look at verse 9. Behold, I will establish my covenant covenant. You catch that? You guys see that? I would circle these words. I will establish my covenant. Look at verse 11. I establish my covenant. I, God speaking, establish my covenant. Look at verse 12. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant that I make. Go down to verse 15. I will remember my covenant. Go down to verse 17. This is the sign of the covenant that I establish. When when Moses is writing this, he does not have the ability to bold words. So, what do you do instead? You repeat yourself. Something I do too much. That's how, that's how they did it. So what is he trying to do? What's the point? The point seems clear. Make no mistake about it. God's contribution to the covenant? 100%. Man's contribution? Eh, nothing. It's all God's covenant. It's all him. And notice sir, to me that there is no I might establish a covenant or I could establish a covenant, or maybe I will. It's not there. Notice there's no, I will if you. Or if you do this, then I'll establish a covenant. Or you would better, and then maybe I will. There's none of that. God is dogmatically making a statement. This is what I'm going to do. I, I read Charles Spurgeon this past week, and he said this. He who knows the difference between you shall and I will is a good theologian. No, it's he who notices God is the one who's saying, I will, I'm going to establish. God is working, and there's nothing here about you shall. You separate those two. You see that? You're a good theologian. You are on your way, and that is so true here. God is on the move, making a covenant. Third thing we need to notice about this is that it extends to all creation. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, God is very clear. He leaves nothing to escape the covenant. Behold, Verse 9, I establish my covenant with you, Noah, and your family, and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, just in case you don't know what those are, birds, livestock, and every beast on the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. Repetition. What is God saying? This covenant is for everyone. No one, no beast is excluded. And I love what he says in verse 12. He takes it to the next level for you and I. And God said, verse 12, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for, you see it? All future generations. All the way up to That's right, right. 2021. That's the right year, right? 2021? So I watch the Olympics and my mind is 2020. What year is it? Okay. To today, We're included in this covenant. God had you on his mind when he said this to Noah. When he made this covenant with Noah, he was making it to you this morning, to us this morning, for us as a future generation. In this exact moment, everyone on the earth, every animal on the earth is benefiting from this covenant. So what is the covenant? Well, verse 11 tells us what the covenant is. Verse 11 is clear. God says, I establish my covenant with you. Here's the covenant: that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So notice what God doesn't say here. God doesn't say he isn't going to destroy all flesh again. What he is saying is that he will never do it again with flood waters. So he's promising no more flood to destroy everything. Now, why is this particularly important to Noah? I'm trying to, like, think about Noah here, right? Noah probably, if we're understanding right, never saw rain or clouds of rain until he is in the ark and the door is shut. And then the sky gets dark and rain starts falling. Now the earth is dried up, the ark door is open, he's out on the land. What do you think is going to happen when a rain cloud comes rolling over Noah's head? (laughs) Serious PDSD. Talk about a panic attack. No! He doesn't know rain to mean anything but destruction and judgment. And so there's going to be plenty more rain clouds coming his way where he has to discern, is this another big one? And uh-oh, God didn't tell me to get back on the ark. Am I a goner? So I can imagine the anxiety attacks that Noah would have every time he saw a rain cloud. So this covenant it would have been a comfort to him, I think, daily at least weekly, and then God adds to it this sign, this seal of the covenant, which is just a beautiful thing. He says in verse 14 that when he brings the clouds over the earth, the bow is seen in the clouds, that he will remember his covenant. And I love it that who is doing the remembering? God is doing the remembering. God is not going, no, if you remember when you see the bow, then I won't do it again. No, God says, I'm the one who's going to remember. I wonder how many times Noah was standing outside. He saw the rain starting to fall. He began to have a little panic attack. And out of the corner of his eye, he caught the glimpse of a forming rainbow. And went, oh, whew, I know right now God is remembering that he's not going to do this again. I'm sure it happened. Every time Noah saw that rainbow, it meant much more to him, I bet, than it does to you and I. And I think it should mean more to us, perhaps, than it already does for noah i think the knowledge that at a moment at that moment of the rain, of the bow in the sky was him remembering his promise to him would have given him great peace but ultimately i love it that god's not depending on noah to remember the covenant promise so let's let's sum this up god thought of and established the covenant man contributed nothing to the covenant all mankind benefits from the covenant God arranged the sign of the covenant and God is not counting on man to remember what the sign means. All of this, you put it all together, I think is meant to show Noah and us as the reader something very important. This covenant is all of grace. Do you see that? You, you tease out the story and you realize this is just a big, fat grace story. It's a covenant based in grace. God establishes it without asking man his opinion or without man asking for it. That's grace. God is the only one contributing to it. That's grace. It costs man nothing that's grace. Man doesn't do anything to be included in it. That's grace. Everyone on the earth is part of it. All grace. God is not counting on man to remember the covenant. More grace. From start to finish, from beginning to end, the covenant flows out of a heart of a God who is abundant in grace. It's all about grace. And just in case we've missed it, man is still sinful. When he told us post-flood that man's heart is evil from his youth. So man is not worthy of this in any way. And so what do we call it when someone deserves punishment but instead gets blessed? Grace. What do we call it when someone rightly deserves to die but instead is blessed and is fruitful and multiplies? Grace. It's all grace. This is a covenant of grace. All of the covenants in Scripture are covenants of grace. It is God saying, I'm going to rescue you despite you. That is really good news. That's the heart of your God. Your God is a grace-filled, covenant-keeping God. Now, this raises the question. We're going to wrap up with this. At least it raises a question for me. I hope it troubles you. How does God show such grace while being a God of justice? How is he still a God of justice if he's just giving away these blessings? How does he bless those who deserve punishment while still remaining perfectly righteous? He is a righteous God. How does he do that? How is this happening? And I think the answer lies in the bow. I think the answer lies in the bow. There is something very significant about this bow. Look at verse 13. What does God call this bow? Whose bow is it my bow right god says my bow i love it that the esv does not use the word rainbow because it's not the word rainbow it's the word bow like an archer's bow it's a bow like a warrior would use to kill the enemy it's a bow that would be used for inflicting death and doesn't a rainbow look like an archer's bow It does, and that's, I think, very intentional in how God created it. And I think Noah would have noticed immediately that this is a warrior's bow. We don't think that way, do we? If God said, I'm going to put a shotgun in the sky, we would go, that's a shotgun. When he saw the bow and God said, my bow, Noah went, oh, his bow, his warrior bow, his bow that inflicts justice, his bow that, that kills and brings destruction and death. Noah would have known that. But what's so significant about this is what direction is a rainbow pointing? Should it have an arrow in it? Up. If it was pointing down, I don't know if any of you ever had someone put a gun in your direction. It is very disturbing. Even if it's a friend doing it by accident. If that bow were pointing down, Noah would be very concerned. But the bow is not pointing down, and that is no coincidence. The bow is pointing upward, and I think the bow is pointing upward because God is trying to tell Noah and us something. I think he's telling Noah something, and this foreshadows something because there's going to come a time where God is going to point his wrath at himself so that we can be rescued from absolute punishment. Think about how God inflicts justice not on us, but on Christ, how the wrath of God is diverted to God and away from us. I think God's bow in Genesis 9 um, may save all of mankind from being justly destroyed by floodwaters, but it doesn't rescue man from the ultimate judgment, does it? We need something else to rescue us from the final judgment. And so God uses this bow to show Noah, I'm not going to flood the earth again. And as a foreshadowing, it's pointing upwards. There will be a day when God will shoot his own arrow of justice, his own wrath at himself, so that he can rescue us from his punishment. This is crazy good. You see the image of the bow being pointed towards God as a foreshadowing. Of what Christ would do on our behalf. Romans 3 tells us this. It says this in Romans 3. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the same language of Genesis, right? We're all sinful from youth. And, he says, are justified by his grace. We have grace again. As a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forth as a big word propitiation you guys should sleep with that word under your pillow at night as a propitiation by his blood that means christ's blood propitiated the anger of god it absorbed the anger of god it diverted the wrath of god so that when the god is looking down on you all of his anger that you deserve all of his wrath that you deserve for all of your sin is diverted it is put on christ on the cross and god gives god his anger he points his bow at himself, and he executes Christ so that this morning you and I can say that we are free, we are justified, because of His grace. that's a gift, because Jesus took the anger and the wrath that you, you and I deserve. I have to wonder, Jesus is hanging on the cross and the sky grows dark. Jesus says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God turns his face away from Jesus and pours his wrath down on Christ. I would love to know. It's not in the Bible, but did a rainbow show up somewhere as that cloud darkness lifted as a reminder for God's people that God would take his own wrath upon himself so that we could be set free? I don't know. Sanctified imagination running wild. So what does it mean to be a new creation? Well, I think it means this. I think it means being fruitful and multiplying because we have confidence that God's wrath is no longer on us. In layman's terms, terms, everyday terms, God, are you mad at me? Answer, no. But God, didn't you see what I just did? You've got to be angry. No, I'm not angry at you because I poured all my anger onto my son as he hung On the cross. Do you this morning have that confidence? Do you have the confidence this morning? I'm a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away, the new has come. God's wrath has been completely diverted off of me and onto Christ, so I don't have to worry about his anger anymore. So now I can live as a new creation and be fruitful and multiply. Do you have that confidence this morning? Is it a small confidence? Is it a big confidence? Is it a growing confidence? Is it a shrinking confidence? It's important that you know. It's important that you are able to evaluate your own heart and where you are at to know and assess where are you in the confidence level so that you can grab a hold of these truths and believe them for yourself and let them marinate in your heart long enough to bring new living faith to your soul. Sometimes I wish I could get into your house on Monday morning. I would do it tomorrow. and I'd get you in bed and I'd say, you're a new creation! <laughs> you're a new creation. Let that be something you think about on Monday morning. <laughs> Let each day this week be a day, I pray, that you are able to evaluate where you are in your confidence level and they are able to say in your heart, I want to think and believe and live rightly with God's creation, with my fellow man, and with my God. Because I think that's what this story is about. So I say as we leave today, Be fruitful and multiply, and I hope it means more to you now than just have more babies, (laughs) because I think it means much more than that. I want to pray. I'd I'd like to give us a gift of gift of five minutes of just chatting with people that are with you, or you can sit on your own and just God. What do you want me to do with this? How, How should you think differently? What do you need to believe differently? What do you need to do differently as a result of God's word and what God has said to you today? So let's take a minute or two. You guys can talk among yourselves. You can spend time alone. This is just kind of like application time for your soul. And then we're going to sing a song or two in about three or four minutes. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that, that I can say with confidence that I am a new creation in Christ. Thank you for faith that helps us have that confidence. And God, I pray that your spirit would descend in this room on each individual sitting here and that God, wherever they are in their faith, whether their faith is teeny tiny or very strong, I pray that you would give the gift of growing faith. That you would increase our believing that this Noah story is is written for us to teach us about grace and about what it means to be a new creation and to be fruitful and multiply on the earth by how we interact with you and creation and people. And so I pray your word, which is already living and active, that it would meet our hearts by the power of your spirit and that our faith would increase and our faith would grow. Spirit, comfort and encourage us. Even as we spend a few minutes now just talking or maybe sitting quietly, speak to us. Tell us exactly how you want us to be doers of this word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.